Good morning. Hey, good morning. It's good. If you're a guest with us, I'm glad that you're here this morning with us. If you have a Bible, you can open it. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 as we launch into a new series on what faith is. Uh, we're calling it Finding Faith. It's going to culminate in our Easter services here in a few weeks. Um, but looking forward to uh, walking through these passages with you this morning. Hey, last week, um, I want to start out this way. Uh, we, we had a rough, a rough go at it these last few weeks in our, in our community. And last Sunday, we spent a lot of time praying, praying for the Lord to bring some hope and to move in these different situations. And uh, a lot of times we pray for things like that, and then we kind of move on. And I think it's good to stop and thank him when he comes through. Because I was able to attend these funerals this past week, um, and I saw a hope uh, in, in these funerals. I saw a hope that comes from faith in Jesus. I was invited into the schools in Brownsburg to lead a prayer time with teachers. That doesn't happen um, often. And, uh, and so God really showed up. He gave us great opportunities to bring hope and healing. Um, he continues to do that with the buck in a bucket as you give this week. All that money is going to go to just blessing these families. Um, but it's good to stop when he does answer our prayers and thank him. And so I want to do that this morning. I just want to pause as a church family and thank God for all that he has done and continues to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you hear us. God, thank you that according to the passage we're about to study today, we can come before you with confidence. God, that because of what Jesus has done, we can come and speak and spend time with the creator of the universe. And Father, thank you that when you hear our prayers, your heart, um, your heart mourns when ours mourn, and your heart rejoices when ours rejoices. And God, in the midst of a really hard week, I got to see some hope that I, I just firmly believe comes from you. I got to see you move in powerful ways and rally around people. And my prayer, one, is one of gratitude and one that I just believe you're going to keep doing that, supporting these families. But God, we want to pause this morning. We just want to say thank you for answering our prayers and for being good. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's jump in this morning. Hey, I, I don't know what your experience has been like in your reading of the Bible, but as I read through the Bible uh, over the years in my walk with the Lord, a couple things really just stand out to me. One of the things in particular uh, is to watch how Jesus interacts with uh, the people in his hometown. I don't know if that ever stood out to you, but you think Jesus, the hometown, he grew up and he spent 30 years living in a home and he developed relationships. And you would think that when he started performing miracles and doing all this incredible teaching, you would think that he would want to do quite a bit in his hometown. I know I would. I think about my hometown all the time, not just because the weather trumps this place, uh, <laughs> but because, like, the people. I have a lot of memories and experiences with these people. And to think, you know, to go back and see some sort of revival take place in my hometown, that would be just a really neat thing. And, and yet you read the Gospels, and you don't see Jesus doing many miracles. You don't see him teaching very often or interacting there. And then you continue reading and you come to realize it's not because he was unwilling. You know, you pick up on that. It's not because Jesus was unwilling to do things in his hometown. It's because the people didn't want him to. As a matter of fact, there's only two recorded times in your Bible where that says that Jesus was amazed. There's only two recorded times where the Bible teaches us Jesus marveled at something or was amazed at something. And one of them happened in his hometown. It actually says he marveled. He was amazed at their lack of faith. He could not believe the lack of faith that the people in his hometown had. 
Well, if you keep reading the Gospels, you come to Luke chapter 7, and you read about an interaction that Jesus has with this Roman soldier. They call them centurions. He had an interaction with this centurion. And this centurion's son was sick and, and dying, and he had heard about Jesus and knew about Jesus. And so he sends some people as messengers to Jesus and says, hey, my son is sick, and I, I need you to come and heal him. And so Jesus, his heart is moved by this request, and he decides he's going to go and help. And so on his way, he encounters more friends of this soldier. And these friends come to the soldier and they say, hey, um, you don't need to come. Like that wasn't like the request necessarily. Like it's good if you come, but like we actually, we, like we have people that work for us. We understand how all this works. But we believe about you, there's something even different about you. If you'll just speak, like if you'll just say that he can be healed, and that's enough because we'll believe he'll be healed. We believe you can do that. You don't even have to come. And then if you look down at verse 9, here's how Jesus responds to this interaction. He says this, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. See, here's what jumps out to me about both interactions, the one in his hometown and the one here in Luke chapter 7 is this, when Jesus marvels at something, we should meditate on it. You see, when Jesus marvels at something, we should meditate on it. There's two times he marvels, and we should spend some time thinking about what it is that created that amazement inside of him. One is a lack of faith, a lack of this trusting belief in God, and another is an amazing amount of faith, and a faith that is completely surrendered to him. Both created some amazement in Jesus, and I think to myself, man, at the end of my life, I hope it's said of me. I hope it's said of me that my faith amazed Jesus too, but not because of the lack of faith, but because of the trusting belief I had in him. I hope it's said of this church that we were a group of people that had a faith in him, not a lack of faith in him, because I think one way or another you amaze Jesus with your faith. You keep reading through the Bible and you hear all these stories about the faith and what it does and what happens in the people's lives, and you're kind of stirred by it and moved by it. As a matter of fact, for the rest of this series, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to hear about story after story that comes up in this chapter in the book of Hebrews. But there's another story that, that really has always moved me. When I think about incredible faith that comes to mind, it's found in your Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 14. It's this interaction that the, king, the, the king's son, Jonathan. So at the time, the king in Israel, his name was Saul. And he's a big, strong leader uh, who had done quite a bit and accomplished quite a bit, but his faith in what God was doing was kind of shrinking, and so his impact was shrinking. And now they're up against this group of uh, this other military called the Philistines. And the Philistines had them outnumbered. As a matter of fact, in 1 Samuel, you learn that at the time of this interaction, the Israelites only had two weapons in their camp against this other giant army. And the only blacksmiths, the only people that could create more weapons or sharpen their weapons happened to be the Philistines. And so you're just like, oh man, this is a lose-lose for us. But the king's son, his name was Jonathan. And Jonathan had this really strong trust and belief and faith in God. And so we read about this interaction where they're outnumbered and they're kind of sitting in this post, kind of waiting to see what's going to happen next. And Jonathan thinks, man, I don't know if I just want to sit back and wait. I want my faith to do something. And so you read in verse 6, here's what it says. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor. So he had this armor bearer, which not a whole lot of armor in that day, but this guy carried it for him. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. I love it. Two reasons. One, I love the emphasis on who the hero of this is going to be. Right away, Jonathan says, the Lord 
Nothing can hinder the Lord. He didn't say nothing can hinder us. Nothing can hinder us if we just believe in ourselves, if we just try hard enough, if we just know enough. He says nothing can hinder the Lord by saving by many or by few, so maybe he'll use us to do something great. But I also love the faith of the armor bearer. Right? He hadn't even heard the plan yet. He's like, I'm with you, heart and soul, I'm all in. I have to think that after he lays out the plan, he's thinking, I, I already said it, so I have to stay by it, heart and soul, but I don't know about this, because the plan was crazy. What Jonathan said was, hey, let's go over, and we're going to position ourselves where these Philistines up on a higher ledge can see us. And if they yell down to us and start trash talking, saying, hey, come on up here and we'll teach you, then we'll know in that moment that God wants us to go. I'm thinking, are you sure that's the moment? Because I could think of a hundred other responses that would be better than that. Are you sure? But they, instead, they get there and they look up and sure enough, sure enough, these Philistines say, hey, why don't you come up here, you little Israelites? We'll teach you a thing or two. Jonathan's like, we're all in. Let's do this. And so he begins to climb up. Now, this climb was not an ordinary climb. If you know much about military strategy or you just have what uh, I like to call common sense, you know that at the top of the hill, if you're climbing up to somebody, they have the advantage. It's just an advantage, right? But this climb was not a bunch of stairs. It's not like they climbed 100 stairs and then they you know, stretched. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's make sure. Let's get... No, they're climbing rugged terrain, exhausted when they get up to the top of this cliff. And the Bible says there's about an acre of land and 20 Philistine soldiers and just Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they destroy him. And God uses that to create terror in the Philistine army. And as a result, the Israelites regain their confidence. I think to myself, man, that's incredible faith. There's a hundred different times leading up to the moment that my faith would have been really tested and whether or not I believe God wanted to do this. And I don't want it to be said of me that I didn't have faith. I want it to be said of me that when God wanted to do something big, I was willing to let him do it. You see, and so it's really important that we understand, okay, whether it's the faith that allowed uh, these, the centurion to amaze Jesus or the faith that allowed Jonathan to do something really big in his life for God. Either way, God is the spotlight. But the question we have to answer before we get to like, how do we live this out is what is faith in general? Like, what does it mean to actually have faith? We talk about finding faith. Okay, what is it that we're looking for? What is faith? Now, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, or you're not, either way, all of us can relate to this. We all activate and live according to faith. All the time. Let me think about it this way. When I woke up this morning, I had faith that my alarm would wake me when I wanted it to wake me. It didn't, okay, because my phone never reset the time, and so I was an hour late. I made it to first service, so don't worry. Uh, but I had faith that it would. It did, now it let me down, so don't put your faith in your phones, okay? Lesson learned. I also had faith that when I got up, the water would turn on and be warm so that I could take a shower. I had faith that my furnace was going to work throughout the night and my family would be warm. I had faith, though it doesn't always come through, that my car would start. And when I got in the car that I would drive here, I had faith that when I walked into this building, no matter how early it was, Red Harmon would be here before me. And he was, right? Because that's just every day. All right? I had faith that when I got up here to preach, you guys would be here and you're here. You see, faith, I put faith in things. You don't always see them. You don't even think about them, right? Think about this. You don't even think about the fact that you got in your car today and it started and you drove here unless it doesn't start. So you're putting faith in something. Why? Because you don't plan for car, cars not to start. You don't work that into your every single day plan. You don't wake up and say, well, I better a lot of better, about three hours at the beginning of my day because the car's not going to start. You don't. You wake up, and the only time you add that time into your day is when the car doesn't start. And so you, you live out faith all the time. It's everywhere. And, and we see it all over the place, right? I think a lot of people have misconceptions when you start to think about faith and you start processing through it. Just think about faith in general. When you hear the word faith, a lot of people think, faith in general, what do you, what do you associate with that? 
Some people associate, if you're going to have faith, you're a risk taker. You're somebody who, who has, who's willing to take all these risks and do all these crazy acts. I love the Winter Olympics. Okay? I love it because I actually love the commercials that show what it's like for these kids before they become great athletes. You know what I'm talking about? Like they didn't start out jumping off these giant ramps and floating through the air at 100 miles an hour and landing on skis perfectly. Like it, it started with them taking a risk. Every winter Olympic sport except curling required that they took a risk, right? <laughs> okay. Shouldn't even be a sport. We're all in agreement. All right. But the U.S. won, so now we love it. How does that work? Uh, Anyway, so it took risk. They, they didn't just stumble. And a lot of people think, well, if you're faith, you're just this risk taker. You're just someone who will just jump out and do these things. And, and you're willing to try things without really knowing. But yet the Bible never speaks of faith being something we just jump out and, and risk. Other people think, well, okay, being somebody of faith just means you're naive. That you have this kind of blind faith that you just kind of believe in something that you may or may not know to be true. You just kind of trust it. And here's the problem with that. When you read through the Bible... The Bible never advocates for this idea of blind faith. That somehow we have to choose between the, the evidences of science and the evidence of faith and they're in conflict with one another. In fact, the Bible speaks the opposite. The Bible says that your faith requires that you use your mind and your reasoning and your ability to think. Now, the Bible doesn't want you to be naive and just have blind faith. In fact, the Bible says God wants to meet you in your moments of doubt when you don't have it figured out. He's not intimidated by your questions. He's not scared of your doubts. He wants to meet you in a place of doubt. And so the idea that faith, all-encompassing faith, is simply just being naive or having this idea of blind faith doesn't line up. Other people think that faith is just being superstitious. Now, I can't help when every time I think about superstitions, I always think about athletes. It's just the, kind of the world I grew up in. And you just think baseball players are psychos. All right? if, if, honestly, if you ever see a baseball team go on a win streak... They will mimic everything that they've ever done leading up to that win. So like if you're in the locker room and, okay, you were sitting here, you were standing there, and it was exactly this time. You dropped your sandwich, drop that sandwich. Uh, and it's just like, man, what in the world? Because they think somehow it's creating the win streak. Or, th- or this, Michael Jordan. I don't know if you know this about him. But he was extremely superstitious. And he wore his North Carolina game shorts underneath his Bulls uniform every game. That's gross. I don't understand that. These raggedy, nasty shorts from the 80s playing college basketball, and he had to have them under every uniform because he thought that wearing those North Carolina shorts was what made him great, and it allowed him to play great. And I'm just thinking, no, no, it didn't. It makes you weird. It didn't. It's not what made you great, okay? But the idea that being, having faith means you're just superstitious, meaning you believe in something you know isn't true. You just kind of blindly believe it, and you allow it to kind of makes you feel better, and so you just kind of follow along. Again, that's not anything defended in the Bible. You can't look at what the Bible teaches and say that it's just superstition. We can't prove it. There's so much evidence to support it. So what about when it comes to Christians? What what about people that say, no, no, I don't think it's superstitious or naive or being a risk taker. I think that actually having faith is is actually uh, knowing more about God. And so some people have reduced faith to simply being intellectual assent, meaning if I just spend more time knowing more about him, then my faith is automatically deeper. And I have watched Christians, I've fallen prey to this one. I've watched so many brothers and sisters in Christ reduce their faith to simply knowing more. And so that if I study more, if I listen to the right preachers and I listen to the right podcasts and I read the right books and I read the Bible every day and I go to church and I listen, if I do all of these things, then intellectually I'm getting to the place where my faith is deeper. And yet there's so much more to faith than intellectual ascent. Some think that they're good because faith is the same thing as just believing in God. I just, if I believe he's there, I believe. Sure, Rob, everything you guys say, I believe it. I just believe in God. That's all it is. It's just faith is believing in God. And yet, 
James chapter 2 kind of scares us away from that. James chapter 2 says even the demons believe in God. So faith can't simply be reduced to believing in God. It's not just believing in him because the demons believe in him. Look, friends, the same way that we can look at somebody and say, hey, just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean he doesn't exist. Maybe you've said that to someone. I've heard people say all the time, I don't believe in God, therefore God doesn't exist. That settles that we don't have to talk about this anymore. And it's like, no, 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 that's not intellectually responsible. Absolutely not. You can't just say you don't believe in him and all of a sudden he just ceases to exist. That doesn't work. You need to have a reason why you don't believe in him. But the same thing's true for us. We don't just believe to believe. We need to be able to say, here's what I put my faith in. Here's what my faith means. I believe because of this. And God wants to meet us in that place. And so uh, this is really kind of plays out in the chapter that we're going to read today. Um, A.W. Tozer said it this way, faith sees the invisible, but it doesn't see the non-existent. So it sees what's invisible, but it doesn't see like things that don't exist. They exist. We might just not see them. My professor in seminary defined faith this way. He said, when you read the Bible, biblical faith kind of comes together. It says, I believe the facts. I believe what happened. I trust the promises, what is going to happen, and I obey the commands. And so they, they kind of come together and they form faith. And, and the writer of Hebrews is going to lay out for us with even more detail what it means to have faith. What does it look like to live a life of faith? And so if you'll turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to walk through. Now, we're going to really focus this series in chapter 11, but I want you to have some context to understand what we're talking about. So we're going to start in chapter 10, verse 35. Here's what he says. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He says, don't throw away your confidence. So he's reminding them, he's saying, hey, earlier in chapter 10, he laid out kind of what the gospel does. So in chapter 10, he says this, hey, before, your sin separated you from God, and you couldn't get to God. You couldn't be in his presence, you couldn't be around him. But in chapter 10, he says, because of the blood of Jesus, because the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice that was once and for all, has covered you, now you can come before God with confidence. Don't let that be lost on you today. Think about that. Because of Jesus, I can come into the presence of the creator of the universe, but I can come into his presence and be confident that he wants me to be there. That he wants me to be around because of what Jesus did for me. So now I'm in God's presence and I have this confidence. Now what the author says is this, don't throw that confidence away because it's that confidence that gets you through the difficulties of life. And there in chapter 10, he begins to detail some of their difficulties. He says, you were persecuted, you were beaten. People came into your home and they stole all your stuff. And you were able to get through that and persevere through that difficult time because of the faith that you have, the confidence that you have put in who God is and what God has done and what God plans to do. Don't throw that confidence away. You can endure this momentary blip of a life. You can endure when you see the reward. That's what he's saying. I can get through this difficult season of my life because my confidence is in the reward that I know is coming. That's what he says right there. Think about it this way. When I was growing up, again, I'm going back to sports. I apologize, but... One of the most dominant athletes in the world when I was growing up was Mike Tyson. Did anybody ever watch Mike Tyson fights? All right, three of us. Okay, the rest of you probably watch him on YouTube or you've heard about him or you're just not raising your hand. Whatever. Uh, but Mike Tyson was one of the most dominant athletes, and it always baffled me. I just thought, how does this guy, for like 11 seconds of work, he makes like 20 million bucks? How does that work? Okay, he gets into the ring. Um, they go through all the announcements. The fight starts. 11 seconds later, the fight ends, right? When he completely obliterates somebody, he collects his 11 million and he goes on. And my friends and I would be like, why are we paying for this? Like, what, what in the world? We paid 75 to 100 bucks for 11 seconds of television. What are we doing, right? And they just duped us. And so we stopped buying them. 
But our conversations went to this. Would you get in the ring with Mike Tyson? Has anybody ever asked? Maybe for you it was like Muhammad Ali. Would you get into the ring if you could have the 20 million? Would you get into the ring and allow Mike Tyson and fight Mike Tyson? And I've always said, absolutely, I can endure that. Give me 11 seconds of torture for 20 million bucks. Absolutely. This is what would happen to me if it were me, right? <laughs> it'd be Mike Tyson. It'd be me on the floor begging him to stop, right? But, but I, I'm like, yeah, I could do that. I can endure that little bit of difficulty for 11 seconds if I knew what the reward was. And the author of Hebrews is saying the exact same thing. When you have a proper perspective on what God is doing, not just believing the facts, but you're trusting the promises, then you can obey the commands to persevere. But I love the focus. The focus is not on what you're doing. The focus is not on you. The focus is on what he has done. So he says, don't lose sight. This is what can get you through the difficulty in life. And I'm thinking, for many of you, you're probably feeling like you've been beat up like that before. Maybe your marriage is just like suffering right now. And you're like, I don't see an outcome. I don't know how it's going to get better. Your job, you hate going to work, and you, the last thing you want to do is be in your place of employment, or you're not sure about school, or you've lost a loved one, or you're feeling pain, you're feeling suffering, you don't know what your purpose is right now. Your friendships have struggled. You, you just, what is next? I don't understand what's next, God. And the author of Hebrews would say to you, don't lose your confidence. Look back and see all that he's done, how faithful he's been, and trust that he's going to continue to be faithful. You can persevere when your faith and confidence is put in the right place. And he continues, and he quotes some scripture. Verse 37, he says this, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. He's quoting out of Isaiah, and he's talking about the return of Jesus. Then he goes out of the book of Habakkuk. And I said that right. Verse 38. We'll get there in a second. It says, But the righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. So, and preserve their souls. And so he says this. He says, out of the book of Habakkuk, he quotes. This is a three-chapter book in your Old Testament. It's really short, but here's the, here's the gist of the book of Habakkuk. The Israelite people are being conquered by another nation called the Babylonians. And in the book of Habakkuk, they're wondering, why, God, why would you let the Babylonians come in and conquer us like this? Why would you allow this to happen? And the book of Habakkuk, is, is, it's God's response. He's essentially saying this. He's saying, trust me. I know you can't see what's going on like I can see it. And I know it's hard and I know it's difficult, but trust me, I know what I'm doing. Just trust me, I'm going to get you through this. And so the book of Habakkuk ends with some of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. Here's what it says in verse 3. You might want to highlight this or take a picture of the screen or something. He says this, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. When everything is going wrong, When the land's producing no crops, we've got no cattle, we've got nothing growing on the trees, when it just kind of feels like there's nothing left, I can rejoice because my confidence is not in my circumstances. My confidence is not in my own abilities. My confidence is in the God who's already seen me through so much. He says, don't fade away from this. Those that walk away, when you're under the protection of that confidence and faith, you're safe. He says, when you walk away, there's a punishment for that. You don't want to be outside of that. And so he says, when you look to him and place your confidence and trust in him, he will see you through each and every time. Look, I'm going to be really vulnerable with you. This is a hard week for me every year. The anniversary of my mom's death is March the 7th. 
She died very unexpectedly right before my wedding, and my dad died 30 years ago today. He was a police officer. He did some other work as well, and he was killed in an armed robbery. He went to work, and he didn't come home. It's really hard this time of the year, this week. It just is. And uh, you can probably understand a little bit why and how the events of the last two weeks kind of brought that even more to the top in my heart and in my mind. The reason it's hard for me is because each year my kids hit new milestones and each year my parents aren't there to see it. And it's tough because they're young and these milestones are significant. I just miss them. Just kind of wish they could be there. Let me tell you how this works. My confidence being in myself would lead me to despair, but this past week, my prayers were like, Lord, I, I believe you. And so we, we planned this sermon series months ago. Like months ago. We, we unveiled, I think it was like November, we like got this whole sermon series together. I could have never thought that this, all that has happened and it would lead to me having to prepare this sermon and read that passage in Habakkuk on this difficult week and allow the Lord to remind me like, hey, like, don't throw your confidence away. I'm going to get you through this. And over and over and over again, he has. See, now that's your background to chapter 11. Don't throw this away. And now he goes into chapter 11, and he gives us one of the best definitions in all the world of what faith is, and he gives us one of the best descriptions of faith in chapter 11. So for the next few weeks, we'll study chapter 11, but for today, we're just going to focus on verse 1. Here's what he says. Now, considering all of that, he comes and says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now I'm going to do something that uh, you may not think is necessary, but I just think it's uh, this beautiful truth. Uh, the, the Bible, your New Testament, one of the languages that is in your New Testament is Greek. It's called Koine Greek. It's a dead language. It's not spoken anymore. Normally, it's just not necessary to bring it up in a sermon, but today I, I want to point something out to you that will kind of set the stage for this entire series. In Greek, their word order, when you read in Greek, it's not like reading in English. You don't just translate it word for word. They, they would place certain words at the front of sentences for emphasis. So when you're reading Greek, you would ask, why did they put that so close to the front of the sentence? Like, what is that about? And you want to know why they're emphasizing what they're emphasizing. It's also a really weird word order. It's like talking to Yoda, right? Where we would say, I'm doing this. Greek would read like this, I'm doing. And it's all based on what they want to emphasize. And so the first word in Hebrews 11.1 1, is not faith. Here's your big letdown. The first word in Hebrews chapter 1 in the Greek language is the word is. It's the word is. And here's what I think the author is trying to communicate to us. It's not about what you're doing. Faith is who you are. It's all-encompassing. It controls everything. It is everything. It is all of your life is faith. Is, this faith is the confidence you have. It is the conviction that you have. It is the assurance that you need. It is everything in life. So if you wanted to emphasize chapter 11, verse 1, you would highlight and circle the word is because it, it's communicating. It's an all-encompassing part of who you are. And then he goes on and he says, now, because of who you are, you have this assurance of things hoped for. I like the translation that would translate that word assurance, uh, confidence. It's good either way, but confidence really communicates this idea that I have a confidence in something I'm hoping for, which means it's not something I can control. It's not something I do. It's not something I'm earning. Right? This, this definition of faith being a confidence in somebody who has to do something for you that you're powerless to do for yourself. I have faith in the one who can do what I can't do. I have confidence in what he's going to do, things that I'm hoping that he'll accomplish. 
This flies in the face of a lot of modern understanding about faith in God. Okay? It flies in the face of what I'd call legalism. Okay? Legalism is this idea that I can take Christianity, reduce it to a bunch of rules, minimize the relational aspect of God, and just tell everybody to have to follow the rules. And while you're doing a good job, that feels really good. And then when you fail, that feels really horrible. And it makes everyone else around you feel judged. This takes that away because it's not about what you do. It's about who you're becoming. The other thing it flies in the face of is what, I, what many people call uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. And here's all that means. It means that I believe that God created, yeah, Rob, everything that you're saying I believe, but like, if I just do the right thing, I'm going to be good. And I just have to have good morals, and my morals and my behavior make me feel better about myself. And so if I just have a good attitude, and I treat people good, then everything's good, and the whole relational dynamic, this flies in the face of that too, because if it was all up to what you're able to do and how you're able to make yourself feel, that'd be great, but it doesn't work. Look, I wish I could reduce Christianity down to the six rules that would make your marriage better, the nine things you should do to, you know, to, to speak well or to manage your money, but it's just so much more than that. We could reduce it to a bunch of things we're supposed to go and do, and we could make ourselves feel really good about all the things that we do, but the motivation wouldn't be pure. He says, your confidence and your faith, faith comes, the strength of your faith is not in what you do, it's in the object in which you place your faith. Look, everybody who has faith has to place it in something. And here's what I would want you to know. Your faith is only as strong as the object in which you place it. Your faith, now, here's why that matters. Because a lot of you, you put your faith in yourself. And you can see that in our culture. We say it to our kids all the time. Like, you can be anything you put your heart to. Anything, you just believe in yourself and work hard. Like, is there a bigger lie we tell our kids? Like, do you realize there's only one president at a time? So you can't tell every fourth grader that they could be the president. You can be the president, just believe in yourself, right? If my kid grows up to be 140 pounds soaking wet, he's not going to be a lineman for the Cowboys. It's just not going to happen. And I can, just believe in yourself. No, it's a death wish. Like, stop working toward a goal that's not attainable. Stop. But we tell them all the time, just believe in yourself. I just have faith. If I just believe. Here's the thing. If your faith is grounded in yourself, it will only be as strong as you are, and the moment you fail, your faith dies. Because you realize you're not strong enough to support the faith that you need, to give yourself the confidence that you need. Well, what about, Rob, what if it's not just in, just in me, but what if it's like in the society or the government or politics? You see, all you got to do is jump on social media and you can see where people are putting their faith. Emotional meltdowns over the political standing in the country? Look, you can care about politics without allowing it to be the foundation of your faith. You can interact in these worlds without it being the foundation of your faith. Because look, political systems will always fail, and they will always fail you, and they are not strong enough to carry the faith you need to endure. What about money and success? Again, money runs out, and you will not always succeed, and when you fail, will your faith last if it has always been put in the money or the work success? Your faith is only as strong as the object in which you place it. He says, now, as a result of that, we have this conviction of things that we have not yet seen. So our faith is this confidence and this conviction. It comes together. It leads us to live these different lives. We stand out when our confidence is placed in him, and we're convicted by the things he's leading us to. comes together to form this idea of faith, and we do great things with our lives. But it's not us doing it. It's us allowing him to do it through us. So where do we get this faith? This trusting belief that God is who he says he is, and God will do what he said he would do. How do I get that faith? Well, the Bible tells us clearly where our faith gets strengthened. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says this. Faith comes from hearing. But not just hearing in general, not anything you want to listen to. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, meaning this is where your faith gets strengthened. 
The more time we spend in the Word of God listening to what He has said to us, the stronger our faith gets. Look, this isn't about listening to a popular preacher. This isn't about listening to a podcast. This isn't about reading Christian literature. All those things are great. But don't be surprised when you face a faith crisis and you're not sure if your faith will go on and you haven't spent any time hearing from the source. The only source the Bible says will strengthen your faith is God and your relationship to him and what he has said to you. So when it comes to living this out, I want to give you one bit of just, hey, take this with you and apply it. It's really affected me lately. And it's affected me because a lot of times I want to make what I do about what I'm doing and not who I'm becoming. Please hear that right. What we do should be a byproduct of who we're becoming in Christ. Meaning all I have to do is focus on him, stay attached to him. All these things will come if I stay focused on him. And so I want each and every one of you to be a bad wide receiver. Okay? Be a bad wide receiver. It's on your bulletin. B-A-D-W-R. And here's all it means. Be a disciple worth reproducing. Be a disciple worth reproducing. Now what I'm saying is don't go out and earn that. Because a disciple that's worth reproducing is not someone who's trying to earn their way. It's someone who's responding to the grace of God. It's someone who's blown away by the fact that I can enter the throne room of God with confidence, that that's still that truth. Uh, Because of Jesus, I can be in the presence of the creator of the universe. And because of that truth, I'm blown away. And so anything he wants to do in and through me, he can go and do. That's the story of every hero that we're going to read about in, in Hebrews chapter 11. Flawed, broken people who put their confidence in the God who led them And he led them to do great things. It's the same truth for Jonathan. It's the same truth for his armor bearer. It's the same truth for the centurion. And it can be the same truth for you. God wants to do incredible things through your life and through your family, through this church, in this community, and around this world. And he wants to do it through a group of people that said, we will place our confidence in things that we hope for, and we will have our assurance in things we have not yet seen. We will have faith in the God who is and who was and who will be. And as a result of that, Placing our confidence in that, it can never fail. What would it look like for an entire church full of people to live out that kind of faith? Imagine the way this community, this country, this world would change if we put our confidence in him, allowed him to lead us and work through us. My question for you is this, where where are you placing your faith? Let's pray. Father, thank you. for being so good to us. God, thank you that we can approach you with confidence. Like knowing right now as I'm talking, I'm not talking to the air. The creator of everything is listening to us right now. It's just so humbling. We're so grateful that Jesus made that possible. Father, each person in this room faces a very real enemy who wants to distract them and get them to place their faith in momentary things. God, my prayer is that we would spend time in your word, that we would hear from you so that our faith would deepen and strengthen and we would be people not reliant upon anything except our relationship with you. Father, when those dark, difficult days come, days of doubt and pain, when they come, and they will, I believe that we can persevere, but only because of Jesus. And so may we place our faith and trust, our belief, in him. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we get ready to take communion. I, I love that we're doing this at the end. Right? Because we're going to like, 
you're going to leave this place and like you're going to have an enemy that wants to distract you and do things. Like he's just going to want to get your mind off of living for the Lord. And if you're not careful, you're going to try to like rely on just maybe something I said. But, but really, you're leaving here and scattering to live intentionally for Jesus this next week should genuinely be in response to what you're about to do in communion. Like you, you're reminded in communion of what incredible thing that God did for you in Jesus. And you allow your heart and your mind to be realigned with that truth. And when you leave here, that's what you're responding to. You're responding to what we heard in God's word, but culminating in remembering the sacrifice of Jesus for you. See, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul said that when God saved us, he sent us. He he wants us to be his ambassadors. He wants you to do great things for him. Yeah, you're not going to do it perfectly. That's okay. That's why Jesus came. But he still wants to do great things in your life and use you to do great things. He wants you to be his ambassador. But I love how he ends chapter 5. He says, hey, you want to be a good ambassador? Here's how you do it. You got to remember that God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him, not for him, not things that we accomplish, but in him, in our connectedness to him, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, we change the world really by connecting to the Father. And so as you take communion, let your heart and your mind be realigned with that truth, that your connectedness to him changes everything.